0: Good morning, church. hope you're doing well uh, this morning. My name's Billy. If you don't know me, I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here. That's an incredible honor for me to serve you uh, in that way. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, if you're new here, uh, we've actually been for this whole year working through uh, the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bible, you turn about halfway and a few more, you should see uh, four names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are... Uh, the Gospels. And so those are biographies of Christ, who he is, what he came to earth to do. And so we've been working our way through the fourth one of those, which is uh, the book of John. And so we're excited uh, to continue in that uh, today. Today's an exciting day. We're glad that you guys are here. A lot of festivities going on after the service. And so it's going to be fun. But right now we want to turn our attention to God's word and pray that God would speak to us through his word. And that he would uh, move in the hearts, in our hearts, and help us grow in our relationship with God. And so uh, let's uh, turn our attention to verse 1, John chapter 7, verse 1. And it reads uh, this way. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee. And go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. For no one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Uh, So if you were here, you know at the end of chapter 6, we uh, had been studying through uh, one of the miracles of Christ. And so one of the miracles that Jesus did uh, was he called a little boy to himself and basically took his lunchbox, which had a couple of sardines and a couple biscuits, and basically multiplied it into enough food to feed 20,000 uh, people. And so John chapter 6 was all about him being the bread of life. And so uh, we, we read that, we looked at that, and then at the end of John chapter 6... Uh, Jesus always would preach a message after the miracle. So his miracle di- wasn't really an end in itself. He would always have a message on the back end. And that message was essentially that we needed to come to the bread of life. It wasn't enough to just come to Jesus and get the blessing of physical food. Jesus wanted us to come to him spiritually and to see that he is the bread of life, meaning that we can come to him And that we can uh, believe in him and he can satisfy the hunger of our heart. The eternal hunger that he's put into our hearts. Well, at the end of that uh, chapter, what happened is you would have thought people would have responded in a good way to Jesus. But what happened is they did not. So 20,000 people started that morning following Jesus because of the miracle. And by sundown, there was only 12 And it was the 12 disciples. And so uh, John chapter 7 picks up where that chapter uh, leaves off. And we see Jesus here uh, is still struggling with this idea of people uh, believing him. Jesus is not really struggling. The people around him are. And so here we see even his own brothers misunderstanding Jesus and refusing to believe in him. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible teaches that Jesus actually had a few brothers, four of them, half-brothers, of course, because Mary would have been their mom and Joseph their dad. Mary was Jesus' mom, but God the Father was uh, his dad, right? So they would have been half-brothers. And so he had uh, four younger brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And so Matthew 13, 55 teaches that. And they were all sons of Mary and Joseph. Of course, we know uh, they weren't believers here but two of them, we know for a fact, became believers because they actually wrote books in the Bible uh, after the resurrection. His brother James wrote the book of James. Uh, his brother Jude wrote the book of Jude, which is one of the last books uh, in the Bible. But here, they hadn't quite gotten there yet. They weren't believers. Uh, they, they were, uh, you see them, they actually think Jesus is interested in being kind of a public figure. Like he's interested in becoming famous, or he's interested in, uh, you know, kind of being a big deal uh, in the in the world's view of things. So they basically are trying to lay out a plan for him uh, as his tour manager, so to speak, uh, to get his rep back up. I mean, again, he just lost all of his followers, so now they're like, "Hey, Big Brother needs some attention. Big Brother needs to 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 get his rep back up. His street credit's gone. So we're going to take him into to Judea, uh, which is a bigger city." And they're trying to tell him, hey, you can't stay in Galilee, which is really a fishing village, a smaller town, uh, and, and get, your, get your rep up. We need to send you to the city, uh, which is full of lights. There's a lot of people there, and this is what exactly what you need. You can do a few more miracles, and man, we'll have 20,000 before you know it. Again, Jesus was not thinking that way. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, he, he was not thinking that way at all. But we'll see that in a minute. And they were going up to Judea during a time that was called the Festival of the Tabernacles. And I don't expect you to know what that is. Other translations call it the Festival of the Booths, which is kind of a big deal in the Jewish culture. They had three really big festivals. This was one of them. This would have probably been the biggest event of the Jewish year. Uh, Think Onion Festival, but think bigger than that. All of the Jewish people would have traveled to uh, Judea during this time period. Uh, it, It literally... Uh, they would have lived in tents. The law told them that they need to live in tents or tabernacles or booths or whatever you want to call it. And so all of the Jewish people would descend upon or ascend to Jerusalem and they would uh, leave their homes and for seven days they would live in tents and they did this to basically commemorate uh, God providing for his people uh, during the desert uh, wanderings in the book of Exodus and then also they would do it each year to celebrate the harvest of Uh, Basically the fruit harvest of olives and different things. And so that doesn't sound cool to you, but to the Jewish people, very cool. A lot of people were there. It would have been a huge time. Uh, A lot of historians talk about how just uh, incredible of an event this would have been in Jerusalem. Lots of lights, lots of people, lots of tents. It was just a really cool uh, cool thing. So it made me think of Bonnaroo for you '70s people, but that's kind of uh, what I thought of. But anyway, of course, Jesus had different plans, but that's the context in which he's walking into. Listen to verse six. Therefore, Jesus told them, "My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. He's talking to his brothers. Remember." I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, but not publicly, in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So again, Jesus knows that all this is happening. He knows that there's whisperings about him in Jerusalem... And they're all trying to really just figure out, who exactly is this man? And this is really the theme of the next few chapters. Jesus is going to make statements about himself. They're going to be very profound statements. And the people are going to try to figure out, okay, who is this man? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? And everyone honestly had their own opinion of Jesus. And some of those were good, and some of those uh, were bad. And he knew that the Jewish leaders were there, and that they were still looking for him. Uh, and wanted to kill him. And so Jesus kind of goes stealth mode, if you can think in that way. Really incognito. And uh, because the Jewish leaders were still upset with him from the the healing that he had done in John chapter 5. And so do you remember that? He was at the Pool of Bethesda. He healed the lame man. It was on the Sabbath That broke their religious law. They didn't like that, so they were after him about that. But then also they were after him because he was claiming to be God, and they didn't like that at all. And so they were trying to uh, kill him. And, of course, uh, they would crucify him later on for these same type of claims. But here, Jesus makes two very interesting statements that I want us to look at. Uh, The first is that he tells his brothers that my time... Has not yet come. And you can kind of read by that and not understand it. But Jesus is showing us something significant here. What he's showing is that he lives on a different schedule than his brothers. His brothers are kind of controlling their own schedule, but Jesus is is on his father's schedule. Like he's on his father's timetable. Everything the father wants him to do, and when his father wants him to do it, he is following that according to his plan. What he does and when he does it is determined by his father in heaven. And I was just thinking about that this week and thinking, what a powerful truth, not just for Jesus, but for us. Like, think about this idea. Who determines your schedule? Like, when you think about who determines your schedule, would you fall in line with the brothers where you kind of do what you want and the world really dictates your schedule? Or would you say, no, I actually look to God to determine my schedule? Like, how would your schedule change if you actually allowed God to be a priority in your schedule on a weekly basis. And that really convicted me. I hope that helps you. But that isn't the only statement in there that stuck out. Jesus was also showing them, he made this statement, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And so Jesus is showing us here that there's a clear reason that people in the world hated him. And, and didn't believe in him. And that reason was because he came into the world as the light of the world. And he's about to say that in the next few chapters. And we talked about this in John 1, but I want to say it again. What does light in the world do? Well, one of the major things that it does is it exposes darkness. And so uh, no one likes to be exposed and no one likes to be told that they're wrong. Well, when Jesus came into the world as the light of the world, it exposed us in our sin because he's different than us. He's sinless, and we're sinful, and so our sin is exposed in light of who he is. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do because until we see that we are a sinner and fall short of the glory of God, we don't understand that we need a Savior. And Jesus's main point in coming to the world, one of them, was to do uh, that. Verse 14, Not until halfway through the festival... Did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach? So Jesus went in incognito, but about halfway through, he came out of stealth mode and he started teaching. Verse 15, the Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? So Jesus comes to this festival. He's in stealth mode, but about halfway through, he decides he's going to get up and teach. And when he starts teaching, the people that heard him were blown away. They were mesmerized with how much, uh, how, how smart he was and how much he knew about God and how much he knew about God's plan. Well, little do they know, that he is God. So he knows the heart of God. To see him is to see God. And so he's informed. And they didn't really put him in that category because he had never been to a seminary or he had never been to the religious leaders' training of that day. And so these people are just mesmerized that he is so. Uh, well-informed and so well-learned as he is teaching. But Jesus, of course, makes it clear again. He leaves no doubt about it. He made it clear who the source of his teaching was. What did he say? My teaching isn't mine, but it is from the one who sent me. And anyone who chooses to do the will of God will listen to me because the teaching I have is not to please man, it's to please God. So you want to know what God thinks? I'm telling you what God thinks. I am God. And so listen to how they respond. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. And now I've taught a lot of sermons, you know, and not a lot of them are good. Some of them are good, but as I listen to myself from the past, I understand, like, I've, there's some sermons that I did that I wish I could take back, and they weren't really good. And um, But one thing that's never happened to me is I've never preached a sermon and walked off the stage and someone said, you're demon-possessed, right? And so... I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe I need to be more like Christ, but you can imagine how that would have felt as Jesus. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them. I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, if you don't know what that is, uh, Pastor Blake will be at the tent uh, after service, and you can talk to him about that. Uh, Though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, and you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath, Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So again, many of the Jews were angry with Jesus because he had healed this lame man on the Sabbath and he was claiming to be God back in John 5, but Jesus doesn't take it. Like he points out their inconsistency. He says, the Jews obeyed law of Moses by performing circumcision on the Sabbath. So if the act of circumcision didn't break the law, then how could me literally healing a man or making him entirely well break it? And Jesus exhorted them. He said, listen, hey, y'all need to be able to judge rightly and stop judging based off of outward appearance. And the only way to judge rightly is to judge using God's standards and not your own personal preferences. And so, of course, this went over like a ton of bricks, but I want you to write down something, because this is important, and I want you to write it down, and here's what I want you to write down. You do not want to argue with Jesus. He is a really, really good arguer. Uh, Not only because he's God, and he's always right, but because he knows your false motivation or your pretense and everything that you say, and he can poke holes into it immediately. If Jesus was a lawyer, he'd be the best lawyer ever, right? And so that's what we see here, is they're trying to argue with him, and Jesus is basically just slicing and dicing, and uh, they're still, for some reason, just, just not conceding. Verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? Well, here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. So have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and where the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from, and I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him, and they said, When the Messiah comes, will he perform signs, more signs than this man? And the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So again, kind of the theme of this chapter and really the next few chapters is everybody's just trying to figure out who Jesus is. Like, is he a public figure? Is he just a miracle worker? Is he a prophet? Is he demon-possessed? Is he just a good teacher? Is he the Messiah? If he is the Messiah, then how does he come from Nazareth? Because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But Jesus, again, he makes it crystal clear that he had come from God, and he was the Son of God that came from heaven. Listen to verse 28. He says, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him. Because I am from him and he sent me. And the passage says that many people believed after he said this. And of course, this stirred up the religious folks because they're worried about control. And if people are believing in Jesus, they can't control them anymore. Uh, So of course, they try to arrest him. But Jesus again tells them, hey, My hour has not yet come. So, like, it's crazy. They're trying to arrest him. They don't know he's God, and God is sovereign over everything, so he can literally keep them from arresting him in some kind of sovereign way. I always wonder, what did he do at this point? You know, he's speaking on the stage, so if they wanted to arrest him, why couldn't they just come up there and get him? But Jesus is, of course, sovereignly doing things in, in the back to keep him from getting there, I guess. I don't know. Who cares? And Jesus keeps on teaching. So listen to what he says. So they're trying to arrest him. You would think Jesus would disappear. He doesn't disappear. He keeps teaching. Interesting. Verse 33. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me, and you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach them? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So, of course, Jesus is confusing the mess out of them right here uh, because he's talking spiritually and they're still focused on physical things. He's talking about the ascension that's going to happen in Acts 1, which... Luckily, we get to look back now and see that that's what he's talking about. If we were there, we would probably be as confused as they are because he's talking about going back to heaven. And, of course, it's right over the top of their heads because they're thinking uh, on a physical level, and they're like, okay, well, he's leaving here, but he's saying I can't go where he goes. Like, where's he going? Is he going to teach somebody else, and he's not going to let us go? Like, what's happening? But then Jesus continues to teach. Listen to what he says. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, that would have been day 7, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now, if he's saying this in a loud voice, this is important. So listen. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John gives us his commentary to know what it means. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time... The Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here Jesus gives an incredible invitation on the biggest day of the festival. And you got to think, this is thousands of people. Jews have descended, uh, ascended upon Jerusalem uh, from, from everywhere. All these tents, they've been there seven days sleeping outside. You can imagine the smell at this point. And they're all there and they're listening. And Jesus gives an incredible invitation and says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John says he's talking about the Spirit. This is very similar to what Jesus has been saying. He's been saying that he's the bread of life. That if you eat him, you'll be satisfied. He's also been saying, I am the living water. Anyone who drinks of me will never thirst again. And so Jesus is using these same types of illustrations and metaphors to show exactly who he is. And what Jesus is talking about here is the Holy Spirit when people believe in him. And what he's promising is that for those who believe, come to him and drink and believe in him as the Son of God, he's promising that the Holy Spirit will come and live inside of that person that believes. And this hadn't happened yet, but there's going to be something that happens in Acts chapter 2 and it's called Pentecost. Penta meaning 50, 50 days after. Passover is what the name of it is. And Pentecost was a time where the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers for the very first time permanently. It's an important day. It's a big deal. And if you don't know about Pentecost, you don't know about the Holy Spirit, you need to listen up. It is very, very important that you understand the, the, the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. It is an absolute game changer. And if it's not a big deal to you, then you need to, 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 to back up and restudy what Christianity is. And why do I say that? Because for me, I, when I first began to want to be a Christian, I misunderstood this. I thought what it meant to be a Christian was just to listen to the preacher and do what the preacher says. And that wasn't a bad thing, but you can't do anything in the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a necessity and when we begin to understand that we need the Holy Spirit to do anything, then we begin to see what Christianity is really about. Because what could be better than Jesus beside us? Right? Could you imagine just walking through life with Jesus right next to you? Hey, what you think, Jesus? What should I say? Oh, I shouldn't say that? Okay, I shouldn't post this. All right, good. All right, what could be better than that? Well, the only problem with that is Jesus can only be physically at one place at one time. And so Jesus says, it's actually better that I go to heaven because when I go back to heaven, I'm going to send a helper to all believers. And that's what Pentecost is about, that the Spirit of God can literally live inside of me and you if you're a believer, and we can be in different places, and believers can be all over the world, and God can be present all over the world at, at, at the same time. It's an incredible, incredible reality. You read scriptures like this: Second Corinthians five, seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, 26 and 27. Maybe my favorite scripture in the whole Bible. And this is the Old Testament prophet talking about this new covenant that Jesus would bring about. And he says, here's what Jesus would do. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone, that's your old sinful heart, and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh, one that's spiritually alive, and I will put my spirit in you And it's going to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Have you ever met a Christian that everything they do in the Christian life, they're miserable doing it? You ever met that person? Y'all ain't been to church enough. You'll meet them. And the difference in a Christian that has the Spirit of God and a Christian that's just trying to be a Christian on their own is that when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you actually want to live for God. It brings an incredible joy because the fruit of the Spirit is joy, right? Love, there's a lot of them. But we see the Spirit of God does an incredible work. When a person believes, God gives the Holy Spirit to permanently live inside of them. Ephesians 1 teaches us that. And his Spirit begins to work in us and through us. The first thing it does is it regenerates us. Right? It saves us. It makes us a new person, not a better person, a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. Secondly, it begins to produce life change in us. The Bible says that it begins to conform us to be more like Christ, right? And so the Spirit, Jesus, God, the third person of the Trinity living inside of us, He begins to work in our lives and make us more like Christ. He's sanctifying us. Not only that, but he begins to produce fruit in us. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit of God at work in us begins to produce these things in us, right? Not only that, Acts 1.8 teaches us that the Spirit brings power. That word is dynamo, the same word we get dynamite from. Have you ever blown up anything with dynamite? What it looks like before the dynamite explodes and what it looks like after the dynamite explodes is completely different. When the Spirit of God comes into our life, we look completely different because our whole purpose in life changes, because we receive power to now live on mission for God, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and through his Spirit, God literally downloads his heart his thoughts, his affections into us so that now we live on this earth with the heart of God as God's representatives to the world. This is what the Spirit of God does. And listen to me, if you're in this room and you've missed that, then you've missed the literally the biggest teaching of the gospel, in my opinion. And we live, listen, in a culture where people want to tell you, hey, you can do it on your own, just come to church and look this way, talk this way and do this, But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you are a sinner and you need Christ and you need to believe in him. And when you believe in him, he will put his spirit in you and it will change everything about you. And he'll begin to change you for the rest of your life. Not because you deserve it or you do anything, but because Christ loves you that much that he wants to give you his spirit to dwell inside of you. And this is an incredible truth and we cannot miss it. We cannot miss it. Christianity is not about being a better person. God isn't interested in just making you better. He wants to make you new. That's why this is the greatest invitation in the entire world. Come to Jesus and drink. And the question for us today is, have we come to Christ? Like, is that a new teaching to us? Like, have we fallen into this religious, hey, I'm going to come pray a prayer, and then I'm going to start going to church, and then I'm going to just do all these religious things and hope that God's going to love me at the end of it? That's not the gospel, that's religion. The gospel is that God loves you and he sent his son to die for you so that you could believe in him and now be made new and regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit and he could, he could literally make you new for the rest of your life. Is the spirit of God in you? That's the most important question you could ever, ever answer. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. And then others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the people were divided because of Jesus? Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus in? Listen, to this, this is my favorite part. Verse 46. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards reply. Then they come back at him. You mean he's deceived you also? the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in this man? No. But the mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. So they think Jesus is cursing people. He's actually setting them free. Verse 50. Nicodemus. Somebody say Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, John chapter 3, and who was one of their own number, asked does, the, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I love how this chapter, chapter ends. People literally still can't decide what they want to do with Jesus. Some are still confused. Some are believing. I mean, think about it. The guards that they send to arrest him listen to his sermon and they're so mesmerized that literally, and you got to understand this, for them not to arrest him would get them in some pretty big trouble, maybe even kill them. And they come back and they're like, hey, have you heard this dude? He's legit. I mean, you heard what he's saying? And the, of course, the Pharisees are just, you know, they're even madder after that. You know, no one's ever spoken the way this man does. And so some are believing, many are still rejecting him, and others are just getting mad and they're seeing him as basically a threat to their power. But one name is mentioned that should stick out. If you've been here as we study the book of John, you should remember this name, Nicodemus. Do you remember him? John chapter 3, Jesus has an interaction with a Pharisee, a religious man that comes to him, and he says, hey, there's something special about you, Jesus. And Jesus goes on to tell him, yeah, you need to be born again, which is regeneration, which we talked about the Spirit does in believers, because again, Nicodemus would have been a religious man. He would have been doing a lot of religious things and doing them uh, well. He would have known a lot about the scriptures, but Jesus said, hey, you're missing it. And so he says, you need to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, buddy, like, I'm an adult. I can't, like, go back in my mom and, like, come out. And Nicodemus is thinking physically, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 buddy. I'm talking spiritually. I'm talking regeneration. I'm talking being born again. I'm talking about what? The Spirit of God does in you when you truly believe in Christ. And Nicodemus, uh, of course, we don't really get... Did Nicodemus get saved in John chapter 3? We don't know. And then he pops back up here in John chapter 7. So apparently, his interaction with Jesus had made an impact on him. And he would have been there to hear really the same teaching. Jesus says, come to me and rivers of living water will flow through you. Which is the same teaching on this idea of regeneration... And something had impacted him because now he's standing up in front of his religious buddies, the same buddies that forced him to come to Jesus at night because he cared so much about what they thought about him. And now he's standing up and saying, hey, hey, give this dude a break. Have y'all actually heard what he's saying yet? And of course, they don't like that. And then they begin to oust Uh, Nicodemus and later we'll see Nicodemus again. He'll show up at the tomb of Jesus. Many people believe that he had become a Christian uh, by this point. So this is our passage for today. That's a whole chapter of John chapter 7. That's a lot so I appreciate you guys following with me but in the last few minutes here's what I want to do. As I was reading this passage this week and I read this chapter over and over there was one common theme that just continued to stick out and continue to just press into my heart and this is what it was. People just can't quite figure out what to do with Jesus. Nobody in this passage can really figure out what to do with Christ. What am I going to do with him? And I think a lot of the confusion is really based on the fact that Jesus didn't come into the world the way that they thought he would come into the world. You know, they expected him to be a king, expected him to be famous, expected him to come on a white horse. And Jesus came as a humble servant, born in a barn and literally served people. And so they're confused and they're trying to figure out what do I do with this normal human carpenter from Nazareth that's telling everybody that he's from the Father and he's from God. And I just got to thinking about that theme throughout this this chapter. And the question that I want to ask you today is this What are you going to do with Jesus? Same question that I would ask the people in this, and Jesus was asking them, what are you going to do with Jesus? Not what is the person next to you going to do with Jesus, not what is your friend going to do about Jesus, but what are you going to do with Jesus? Because I believe there are three main things that people do with Jesus where we live. And I'm coming out of the passage a little bit with the principle, but I'm coming out and I want to challenge you guys. The first thing that I think people do with Jesus is this, some people ignore him. And what do I mean by that? They choose to act as if Jesus doesn't exist. They just continue living their life the way they always have. If their mom did it, their family did it, they just kind of keep in that trajectory. And here's the problem with that. Just because we choose not to think about Jesus or think about something doesn't mean that it's not there and it's not real. And people respond to serious stuff this way all the time. It's actually called denial, and it usually doesn't end well. It doesn't end well in addiction. It doesn't end well uh, when you're trying to forgive someone. It doesn't end well when you're grieving. None of that. Denial does not get you where you want to go. It actually usually ends uh, worse than it starts. But living as if God doesn't exist actually has a name. It's called practical atheism. And the Bible actually talks about atheism. Many people don't know this, but anytime I'm talking to someone who says they don't believe in God, I always say, "Hey, the Bible actually talks about people like you." Psalm chapter 14 verse 1 actually says this: "The fool says in his heart that there is no God." They re- they love that, of course. But it's true, it's in God's word. What does God think about the person who doesn't believe that God exists? Right? It's very clear in the world that God exists. And the crazy thing is, is what's more common around here is not practical atheism, it's actually Christian atheism. And let me tell you what that is. Christian atheism is when a person claims Christ, but then lives as if they don't believe. Right? So they claim Christianity but then live as if God doesn't exist. And this is very common, and it can look a hundred different ways, but I want to give you a few examples. The first is this. Some ignore God this way. They just try to argue God away. They tell themselves over and over that God doesn't exist. They try to poke holes in the Bible. What about dinosaurs? What about creation, the Big Bang? What about Jonah and the big fish? How can that be true? They say, man, religion is just a way for weak people to cope with a hard life or they say the Bible's just one big myth or there's no way a good God can exist with all of this suffering uh, in the world or they say if God was real then Christians wouldn't be so hypocritical and I wouldn't have had such a bad experience with the church and listen all of those are valid we can talk about those all the time but hear me out the big problem with all of these is you can't argue away truth like truth is truth Like, it it, it defends itself, right? Charles Spurgeon said it's literally like a lion. You don't have to protect a lion. You just let him out of the cage. And that's what truth is. And the big problem is you can't argue away truth. Jesus is who he says he is. And it actually takes more faith to be an atheist than it takes to believe in God. Because historically, archaeologically, I mean, the life of Christ is evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. The second way that I think people ignore God is by busying themselves where they don't have time to think about God. And this is very common around here. We fill our schedules up to the brim with work and sports and activities and hobbies and meetings and whatever else is out there. We literally uh, prioritize everything but God. We just prioritize and schedule him out of our lives. One of my favorite pastors calls this the merry-go-round of normality. We wake up, we eat breakfast, we drop kids at school, we go to work, we pick up kids, we drop kids off at baseball and dance, and then we come home, we eat supper, we watch something on TV, and then we go to sleep. And then we wake up, and guess what? We do it again. And we wake up, and guess what we do? Do it again. We do it again. We do it again, and we do it again. We fill up our schedule with all of these worldly things, and we never actually stop to think about eternity. And again, this may numb us to God, and keep us from thinking about him, but it doesn't change the reality that everyone will die one day and we will stand before God. And God isn't giving out exceptions to busy people, right? And so we won't stand before God and be like, you know, I I heard a little bit about you, um, but I just had so much going on. You know, I was trying to work, I was trying to provide for my family, and I just was never able to, to, like God doesn't, like you may uh, relate with that and try to justify it, but God doesn't. God's word never says that he's going to empathize with busy people. Like, God expects us to prioritize him and to think about him. He created us and put us on this world to walk in relationship with him. But the good news of the gospel is he's actually giving grace to those people who will believe in him. It's incredible. And then the third way that people ignore God is just by putting him on hold until they're ready to settle down. I hear this all the time. Billy. Bro, I love you. I appreciate you talking to me about this, but I'm just not ready yet. I just need a little bit more time. I'm not quite ready to settle down, uh, but don't give up on me though. Like keep praying, keep thinking about me, keep praying. This is one of my best friends. This guy is just running and running and running after the things of this world, trying to find love, trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. He looks happy on the outside, but internally when we talk about how he's doing, he's absolutely miserable. And every time I have a conversation with him, it just breaks my heart. Because none of us are promised tomorrow. The Bible actually teaches we're not promised tomorrow to live in today. And ignoring God doesn't do anything but bring death and destruction into our life. It definitely doesn't satisfy the eternal thirst that God has placed in our hearts that only he can satisfy. And so here's my encouragement. Don't ignore the God that's trying to satisfy your soul forever. Right? Ignoring God doesn't work however you put it in your life because literally you're you're refusing the invitation that's going to satisfy the deepest part of your soul forever. So the first way that people respond to Jesus is by ignoring him. The second is by acknowledging him. Some people just acknowledge Jesus. Hey, Billy, me and Jesus are good, man. As long as Jesus gives me what I want, I got no problem with him. As long as he doesn't ask me to do something that's uncomfortable or out of my way, listen, we're good. I'll just call on him when I really, really need him and continue to live my life the way I want to live it. I know a lot of people that live their life this way. And basically what this person is doing is conforming Jesus into what they want him to be. That's what this whole series, The Real Jesus, is about. So rather than seeing Christ for how he revealed himself to us in God's word, this person is contorting and, and really conforming Christ into what they want him to be. And it can look a few different ways in our life. Here are a few ways that it looks. The first is, to some people, Jesus is just an ambulance driver, right? They see him as, Jesus, you're there when I need you, especially when I get an emergency. Uh, I, I'll, I'll call on you then, but any other time, just kind of stay out of my life, I'm gonna do uh, my thing. So compartmentalize Jesus to uh, really, emergency situations and then everything else you just kind of do your own thing the second way is to some people Jesus is just a vending machine right they just put a couple religious coins in come to church or read their bible or pray and then they expect to just tap a button and Jesus is going to give them whatever they want you know Jesus give me power Jesus give me success or Jesus just give me what my selfish desires want Jesus give me this Jesus give me that And if the only time we come to Jesus is to get something, we're missing the point of a relationship with God. Jesus is not a means to our end. He is a treasure. Like, he is what we want. He is what satisfies us, not stuff. He does. He is the end. And then to others, Jesus is just fire insurance. Hear this all the time. He is is my get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Listen, Billy, I, I prayed a prayer when I was eight. I'm good to go. No more hell for me. I'm in the line going to heaven. I appreciate you sharing, but I've already checked that box, dotted those I's, crossed that T. And you see this person is good with Jesus as their savior, but they're not interested in Jesus as Lord. And the only problem with this is is that Jesus doesn't come in that package. You know, he's not a bun- he's a bundled package, you know, like an insurance plan. You get home and auto. Well, he's savior and Lord. That's what he comes in. And if we just receive him as Savior, then we're conforming him to what we want him to be because he comes as Savior and Lord. And the big problem with all of these views is that they aren't in the Bible. Like they are things that we've done with Jesus based on our culture, and we've created a comfortable Jesus that we like. And in all these cases, we've just conformed him to be what we want to. And the problem is, Jesus is not imaginary. Like he's not something that we can conform. He's not just a miracle worker or a good teacher or one of many gods or a God who's okay with sin in our lives or a -a build-a-bear God where we can just pick and choose which parts of him we like and which parts that we don't like. He is the one true God. And he has revealed himself to us clearly. That's what we're seeing in this passage as the king, as the Messiah, as both Savior and Lord. And there's only one proper response to him. And that's not to ignore him, and that's not to just acknowledge him. It's the third response, which is to surrender to him. Throughout the scriptures, this is what we see is the only right response to Christ. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the lives of Old Testament saints. We see it in the New Testament with the 12 disciples, with Paul on the road to Damascus. When we truly believe and see Christ for who he is and what he's done for us, The only response is to believe his words, to believe what he says about himself and to surrender our life, to repent, to turn from living for ourselves and believe that we were created by God, for God, and to surrender our life to follow him wholeheartedly. That's the invitation of Christ. You heard him in verse 37. He says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up with a loud voice and he said, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. You know, Jesus is incredible. I mean, he he literally looks at us in this room today. And though we may be ignoring him, And though we may be in acknowledging him, and though our lives may not be surrendered to him, instead of punishing us for rebelling against him and for twisting him and conforming him to what we want and rebelling against the real Jesus, God sent Christ to die and take the punishment that we deserve for us because he loves us and he loves you. And he's here today. And the invitation is, what are you going to do with him? Are you going to just ignore him and continue to live how you're living? Are you just going to acknowledge him and compartmentalize him? Or are you going to surrender to him? So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Listen, I I don't know where you come in the room today. I I don't know exactly what's going on in your life. But here's what I know. God's word's true. And God's inviting you in. And I know he's moving on hearts throughout this room this morning. And if you're in this room and you say, Billy, I've never surrendered to Christ. And I want to. I want God to do a work in my life. I want him to be a river of living water working in me and flowing out of me. And I've always thought it was just about doing things. But this morning, for the first time, I want to ask God to work in my heart. I want him to make me new. I want him to put his spirit in my life. And I want to turn from my sin and trust in him and believe that he is who he says he is. If that's you in this room, I'm going to ask you to be bold. That's what salvation is all about. This is an invitation for you to come to Jesus. And if that's what you want to do this morning, man, I want to pray for you. We want to talk to you. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. If that's you in this room, I want you to ask you to lift your hand right where you are and say, Billy, that's me. That's me. Amen. Anybody else? You say, Billy, that's me. That's me. I'll give you a second. Raise it high where I can see it. Amen. Anybody else? So, Father, here's our prayer. God, you're so good to us. God, you're so faithful. God, the fact that you would want us and that you love us, and God, you don't just want to make us better, you want to make us new. So God, I pray for the two individuals in this room this morning, God, that you would make them new. God, you'd fill them with your spirit. You'd do a work in their heart. God, you would use them for your glory all over this world. And God, I pray for the rest of us in this room. God, we don't just come to Jesus once. We continue to come to him and come to you. And, Father, I pray in this room that our hearts would be soft towards you. And, God, that we would lay our lives down every day. And, God, that you would do a work that only you can do in us and through us. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing one more song with us?